0: Today's show is sponsored by SoFi. See how easy it is to start investing and get $25 in free stock just for signing up when you visit SoFi.com slash real. That's SoFi, S-O-F-I.com slash real. Hey guys, welcome to the Real Life Podcast, where we talk about exactly that every single week, real life, which means some episodes might be about A fight we just had. Some episodes might be about potty training since we have two toddlers. And some might be about eschatological realism because I love thinking and talking about deep theological things. And maybe we'll talk about all three of those in one episode. But we hope the show feels like hanging out in our living room with us, drinking a cup of coffee as we discuss faith and family and culture and Jesus. Me and my lovely wife, Alyssa, are your hosts, and don't hesitate to hit us up or reach out on social media to say hi or comment on this week's episode. Enjoy. Hey guys, Jeff here. Fun treat for this week. Well, actually, before I get to that, um, it's November. To Hell with the Hustle has been out for a couple weeks. Let me know on Twitter, DM on Instagram, how it's going, what you guys are thinking. I will say... Seeing you guys like out of any book I've written, I think that's my fourth one. For some reason, maybe it's just how I'm interpreting it or not. But man, I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude by watching you guys just talk about it, post about it, tag me in it. And I literally so far have tried to keep up with every single one. So I might not respond, but I believe I have seen every single tag and message um, that you've posted or tagged me in about the book. And honestly, guys, there's been tears a couple times because it's just so special to think of a project like this that it's resonating. Like it's—I <laughs> mean, you guys know—if you create something in the world and people resonate with it, it's profoundly uh, moving. So, thank you, thank you, thank you. Also, quick note. Um, you guys are going crazy at target. So like so many of you are saying it's sold out at target. So a couple notes. First of all, if you didn't know, yes, the book is sold at target, every single target, except for a couple random ones. So hundreds of maybe thousands of targets across the nation pro tip, because yes, you guys are, they're going like hotcakes there and you guys are selling them out. Look up target.com. You can put in your zip code basically at the top somewhere. I do this all the time with our home one and it'll tell you if your location has it in stock and like what aisle and how many. So it's really easy before you go, um, to find one that has it two, I don't know if this is because it's selling hotcakes or if they were going to do this anyways, but Target is, I think they're liking how much it's selling. So they're, they're putting the book trailer, like me talking about the book, up on those huge like uh, TV screens up by the book section, which is crazy. Uh, now, this could just be a joke, maybe a, f- a mean joke. My publisher's playing on me because I got really excited to hear that, and I haven't seen it yet. So if you can help me prove that, and it's supposed to be in November. They said it's going to run in November. So if you're at Target randomly and you start seeing my mug up on that TV, please send me a picture because uh, I haven't seen it yet. And so I'm hoping that that's actually for real, and I just am blown away. Okay, to this episode. So two two episodes in a row, we're going to switch it up a little um, during book tour, it was a blast. It was so fun, but it feels good to be home. One of the places I went was Olivet Nazarene University. I have a great relationship with them, Mark and Nancy. They're incredible. They're awesome, cool, awesome university outside of Chicago uh, that I've been to a bunch. Um, but the cool part about that is they invited me during their relationship week, so it was actually. Um, it was one of the only times during the whole book tour where basically I wasn't talking about the book or talking about hustle and burnout and all that stuff. Um, they wanted me to talk about sexuality and vision for relationships and God's design for that. And it was actually really, really fun. I loved crafting a new message, leaning into that. I haven't done a ton of messages strictly on that in a long time. So it was really fun to craft a message for them. So these two weeks are going to be a treat. Hopefully, <laughs> uh, it was, uh, I taught Wednesday, Thursday there in their chapel. So it's this week is going to be on that. And next week's going to be on that. And I, um, I really, really hope you guys enjoy it, that it's a blessing that leaning into God's design for relationships and his goodness and his beauty is good for all of us. And that's what I talk about this episode. It doesn't matter if you're in a relationship or not, understanding what God's design was for our sexuality, for our identity, for our being, for what it means to be human in all these relationships really, really is integral. So I think that's it. Too much rambling. I love you guys. Enjoy. Oh, morning. How you guys doing? Good. If you have your Bibles, Genesis 1, please. We'll be flipping around a little bit. Uh, That bio was a little thick, but I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I'm excited to be back with you guys. I think the only people that probably remember if I was back would probably be the seniors. I think it was about three or four years ago, so maybe you were a freshman at the time. It's a joy being with you guys. You guys have a world-class university, world-class leadership. Mark and Nancy um, are amazing, and it's such a treat to come um, and serve you guys for a couple days. I absolutely love being a part of of the chapel for just a few days. And if I'm honest, I've been to a bunch of other chapels at other schools and they, they kind of suck. Can I say that? Um, too late, too late. Uh, but honestly, and I, and I don't mean just because of who's coming and all those things, but what I, but, and I actually do mean that they're not the best at some level because they can maybe be out of tradition or out of serving the faculty or serving whatever the ritual of that school is. But Mark and Nancy, I love um, in their singular, singularness that they want to serve you guys and he was telling me who spoke this semester already and I was like, can I be a student? You know what I mean, can I be here? Um, Especially N.T. Wright, like that dude is my guy, okay. Um, And I've told him that in person and I don't think he knew what I meant. so Genesis 1, uh, so today's going to be a little bit of a flyover um, so that we can dig in tomorrow in a little deeper way. So I'm just going to kind of talk about a couple misconceptions that I think we sometimes have about relationships um, from the scripture and what these things mean or kind of laying the groundwork for tomorrow. I then want to dig, dig into relationships, but also I think I'll focus in a little bit more tomorrow on sexuality. So I'm excited to be with you guys for these two days. Um, and if you have your Bibles, we'll start in Genesis 1 here in a second. But the premise I want to talk about too is, um, and why I'm so honored to talk about relationships with you guys is I know for me, I'm only 30, so 8 years ago, 9 years ago, 10 years ago, I was in your guys' position, and I remember specifically that was a season where for me, not that relationships were everything, but there's something about relationships specifically in the young adult stage, and not whether you're in one or you're not in one, sexuality, what you're thinking about that, all of that combined. There's something about that where it's integral and central, I think, to what it means to be an image bearer. And another way I used to think about it is like, um, at some level, relationships and how we're doing in them, and the success of them, and the health of them, if we're healthy in our relationships, at some level, things can kind of be crumbling around us and we feel secure, if that makes sense. Uh, But I've also seen people who life is going really, really well except for the issue of relationships, so then it feels like everything is failing. There's something about it that does get to the core of who we are, who we're meant to be, why we're here, and what it means to be an image bearer. And so that's why I want to talk about it because it's deeply important, deeply integral. So if you have your Bibles open, let's read just uh, Genesis one twenty six, a couple verses. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Earth. Now, why I wanted to start there is I think at some level, I know for me specifically, there was almost a detox that had to happen of what it actually meant to be an image bearer for me to understand God's vision, I think, for relationships. Now, what it means to be an image bearer, I know. For me, growing up in a a more evangelical context, probably similar to you, depending on your tradition, I always thought image-bearer kind of meant characteristics. I always thought it meant kind of like God's personality was kind of put on us, right? That we're kind, that we're gracious, that we're loving, all these different things that God is like. Now, at some level, that's true, but I think that's only one small piece of the puzzle. One huge part of image-bearingness that we're missing out on is that image-bearingness, specifically in Genesis, is actually about vocation. It's actually about you have been given a job to do, and when you're created in God's likeness that nothing else is, you have the capacity to create, subdue, reign, and rule on this earth, to name, to bring order, to bring blessing, to bring goodness, and to understand that it changes then how you enter into Relationships. Another way to think about it is, you know, a lot of us, if we were to think of our peak vision of spirituality, it would usually, of like, what does God want from us? It would usually be praying all day, maybe listening to Chris Tomlin and Hillsong United, De- good, good artists, by the way, um, you know, and just like staying in our prayer closet and never talking to anyone. Now, I heard one theologian kind of say, he, wasn't, he didn't use that exact example, but he kind of said, anything like that, if we think that's peak spirituality for what it means to be human, he goes, you're wrong, that's what it means to be an angel. You ever thought about that? Right? Because angels, the heavenly creatures, they are the ones that we find in Scripture doing what? Sitting at the throne, praising, worshiping, saying, Holy, 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 24 7. Now, should we be worshiping? Yes, but image bearers are primarily made to worship through our vocation. Are you guys tracking with me? And that is a difference. So, first of all, we have to detox from that. That a lot of us, we don't realize, but our kind of telos, our vision of what it means to be a Christian, at some level, is actually what it means to be an angel, not a human. But to be a human is to be a gardener, to be a steward, to be a creator, to be a subduer, to be someone who brings order. And that includes in our relationships Not just um, non-platonic, but platonic as well. Everyone around us bringing order and beauty into the world is what it means to be an image bearer. A good way to think about this is um, being an image bearer is kind of like being a 45 degree angled mirror. I know that's a weird way to put it, but if God, like what, what we see in scripture is that God is endowing on the image bearers a particular likeness that no one else has. Now, if you're a 45 degree angle mirror and something's coming down on you, any geometry students, remember in high school, what angle, where's it go? Go straight out, right? Something that comes down at a 45 degrees goes straight out at a 90 degree angle. And that's what it means to be an image bearer, that we're to receive God's goodness, his love, his beauty, and then through our vocation, push that out into the world. But it's also a two-way street. We're called to gather everything that's in front of us, the garden, the elements, gather those, and then create something beautiful out of them, and then offer those as worship to God, including our Relationships. One one interesting thing that I found when I was kind of researching image bearingness this last couple of years is if you were to go to like let's say you were to go let's pick Rome. Okay, so if you go to Rome um, and you go back to their antiquity and all that stuff, you got Caesar, Nero, all these guys. Now. If you get really, really, really far away uh, from those colonies, from Rome, from the capital, and you go to some of the colonies thousands of miles away, what archaeologists have found is that there's a lot of statues of Nero and Caesar and kind of uh, signposts towards these kind of emperors thousands of miles away from the capital. So we can kind of uncover that these were Roman colonies because of this reason. They were under the authority because of this reason. But where have they not found almost any statues of Caesar? Take a guess. No one? Bueller? Rome. Now, why? Why would, you not, why would you have a bunch of statues of Caesar thousands of miles away, but not many where he actually lived? I just gave you the answer. Because he actually lived there. Right? You don't need statues of Caesar when the real thing is right there sitting on the throne in the capital. And I think that's, again, a really interesting but beautiful picture of what it means to be an image bearer, that we are to actually be those statues in the heaven and earth dimension that God puts out into the garden, into the earth, sends out, and what do statues do thousands of miles away in the Roman colony? What do they do? What's the point? The whole point of a statue 2,000 miles away from the guy is what? This is who's in charge. This is the authority. This is a place of his reign and his rule and his goodness and his blessing and his peace. That's what it means to be a human that we might go into our relationships, our jobs, our colleges, all of the earth, not only steward and create and subdue, but then actually by our life, say this is who's in charge. This is who is king. We are only reflections, just like a statue, but that's what it means to be an image of the true king. And that's, again, when you get into the Hebrew context, the ancient Near East, that's kind of what heaven is. Heaven is not this place super far away at some level, but it is God's kind of control room. It is the place where he is reigning and ruling from, that he actually wants to bring down that authority into what? Into those colonies so that heaven and earth are put back together as one. So first, we have to understand that's what it means to be an image bearer. And are we letting that play out all around us? Do we understand that? Because here's the thing, if we only think—I think what happens— is if we only think what it means to be human and be an image bearer is kind of um, abstract characteristics of God, we never let that actually enter into the places that it matters. But if you actually realize, no, what it actually fundamentally means to be human is to reflect God's goodness and beauty and order into the world. Then it deeply has profound impact on your sexuality, on your relationships, on how you date, on whether you look at pornography or not, on your actual sexual past. Whatever it is, all of these different things, it's going to have deep implications and how you actually live in your humanness, your image-bearingness into the world. What's up, guys? I want to take a quick break to tell you about one of this week's sponsors, and that is SoFi. I'm so stoked on them, you guys, a new sponsor. And they are awesome because basically they make investing and a bunch of different things really easy for you. I don't know about you, but especially, I do it now, but in my early 20s, I was intimidated. I didn't know how. People like SoFi—they make it really easy, and that's why I actually love them. And what's cool is it's a kind of an all-inclusive uh, thing. It's a—it's—it's fir- it's the first platform that actually offers stocks, crypto, automated investing, all in one. And my favorite part is you even get access to SoFi's financial advisors, who can answer any questions you have at no cost. So it's really, really cool. Now. Here's the truth. I love it. Uh, The app is really, really easy to use, really awesome, and just low friction for you to be be able to invest. And for me, I'm always thinking of investing, especially for our family now, and to build that multi-generational family team on mission that you always hear us talking about. And financials and investing and long-term plays are a big part of that. Now, if you don't know this, uh, millennials, that's me and most of you probably listening, we're under-invested, meaning because of the 20, because of 2008, a lot of us have been skeptical and it was painful and we think it's complicated. So SoFi kind of wanted to break that and they make it super easy for anyone to start investing with as little as just a dollar. So it's really, really cool. So they wanted to hook you guys up. So you can create an account by going to SoFi.com slash real. You got, you want to, you want to contribute loose? <laughs> That's Lucy helping me do the ads right now. Um, and you can either choose to do it yourself or let even SoFi automate, invest, and build your portfolio for you if you're intimidated by that. It's really, really cool. You can see how for yourself how easy it is. Again, SoFi.com slash real. And here's a fun thing is if you invest right now, you get to receive $25 in mystery stock through that link. That's right. Free stock just for signing up. So go to SoFi.com slash real to claim your free stock today. That's S-O-F-I.com slash real. And for the legalese guys, that's SoFi Lending Corp. CFL number 6054612. All right. Love you guys. The second misconception um, is from Genesis 2.18. I'm not going to read it just for time's sake, but 2.18 down through verse 25, we see what I've already alluded to, this command, again, to be fruitful, multiply, subdue, create, and cultivate, and bring order out of chaos. Another metaphor you can think of is, like I mentioned earlier, is we're all gardeners at some level. What does a gardener do? A gardener, in its true form, takes raw materials, something that has no order, then because of their actual creativity, makes order or blessing or beauty out of it. You either, and what does gardening do? Gardening usually has two options. You either are gardening for beauty, you're trying to steward something out of the chaos to make it beautiful, or you're stewarding something to feed someone, right? What a beautiful picture, again, of what it means to be human. Are you bringing beauty, and is your life actually feeding other people? We're all gardeners. The question is, what is your garden? What are you called to steward? What are you called to step into the chaos and bring order as an image bearer? But what we see in the second misconception, is that's us individually as image bearers, but then what we see in Genesis 2 is that God then says, and these two image bearers shall become one flesh. They will be made a team. They will be infused together at the deepest parts of their being to do work that at some level they couldn't accomplish individually. There is a vocation of marriage we see that is actually about being a team. And this is just something I wanted to talk about for a little bit. Whether you're in a relationship or not, if you are looking to be in a relationship or you are in a relationship, does that person make you an actual, are you a better team because you're in a relationship with that person? Are you actually able to probably accomplish more or see how God's design has brought you two together so that you can be on mission for his kingdom? right? Another way to think about it is, are you only seeing your relationships as face-to-face or shoulder-to-shoulder? Because a lot of American romantic relationships, we only see them face-to-face. It's just about staring lovingly into each other's eyes and making it all really cute and romantic and awesome. That's not the scriptures. That's like Netflix rom-coms, okay? The scripture, when marriage actually shows up, is shoulder-to-shoulder. No, no, no. It's not about being in love. It's about being on mission, Now, is the glue, I believe, of mission to be in love and have an intimate relationship? Yes, 100%. But again, fundamentally, we don't see in Genesis what we see in Disney movies and rom-coms as the essence of a relationship, the essence of why God has brought two people together is so they can actually be on mission in a better way than they could have been individually. God only brings two people together according to his scriptures and his design for you to accomplish something that he didn't think you could maybe do by yourself. Do you believe that? Which by the way, that also then gives us, in my opinion, a great framework for both the blessing and goodness of married and single people. Because whatever dynamic, whatever place you're in, God has you in that season as a calling for your life. One of the biggest things I can't stand is churches that almost make singleness feel like a JV, kind of weird secondary thing. Like, you're almost, like in the, you're almost in like the lobby of the DMV just waiting, right, right? Which DMV is hell, is it not? Okay. Um, <laughs> hate that place. Uh, I could go on. But it's singleness, you are not in waiting, you are in God's call right in that moment. Do you believe that? Do you believe you can live a flourishing and full existence as a single person? You should, the scriptures say you can. At some level, by the way, I don't want to get into it, but 1 Corinthians 7, I actually think you could make the argument of the reverse of what I just said. I actually think you can make the argument that singleness is actually more holy and special. I think, I don't think that's, I would disagree with you, but I think you can make that argument. I don't think you can even come close to making a scriptural argument that marriage is somehow some high ideal that everyone needs to ascribe to. But when you understand that it's about vocation, then you understand, no, no, okay, I have my vocation individually as an image bearer, as a 45-degree angled mirror, as a reflection into the earth for blessing and goodness. And then you are to continue on that path. And if God wants to bring, and he wants to kind of bring another person alongside that for that vocation, then that is his will and his blessing. But that doesn't mean that one is better than the other. They're different entities and callings. They needed to be treated as such. But if God has called you into a relationship... If you do feel like that's God's vision for your future, then you have to ask yourself, is the person I'm with making us a better team? Sometimes it's the opposite, right? Sometimes we're with someone that actually is just like corroding our souls, corroding our humanness, not allowing us to flourish in any regard. Ladies specifically, can I just give you a really easy barometer if you should break up or not? Can we do that? Can we do that? Too late, we're doing it. if you're dating someone, boyfriend, fiance, maybe you're, well, yeah, date, dating if you're, so boyfriend or fiance, let's take that. If your boyfriend, think about your future son being exactly like your boyfriend or your fiance in 15 years. If that makes you cringe, break up immediately. Okay? Why? Because why would you want to be with someone who even with that thought of, no, I don't want my son to turn out like this. Well, then why are you dating that guy? God only brings people together in his design for actually more flourishing, for multiplication of blessing and goodness. And if it's actually the opposite, if subtraction is happening to your humanness, to your call, to your identity, to who you are in your fullness as a man or a woman, you should not be in that relationship at all. Now, can you still give grace to that person? Yes and amen. Can you still be friends with that person? Yes and amen. Because that's another thing that bothers me too. I'm just going on tangents, but let's do it. So, You get like, take porn addiction, which by the way, totally a man and woman problem. I think we almost double shame sometimes the women because not only do we say that porn is bad and we sometimes don't know how to actually operate in that context in the church, but then two, we actually pretend like it's not a women's problem at all, all, so then it's a double shame, right? No, no, God has a better design for our sexuality than porn addiction. That is false, it's cheap, but Jesus heals and he's amazing. But if you are in a relationship with someone who is addicted to porn, you need to break up. It is not your job. Like, I always get these emails, especially from dating people, of like, well, shouldn't I show them grace or show them the gospel? Yes, when you're broken up. Like, there is zero connection between like being in a contractual dating relationship with a person and showing the gospel or grace to them. Are you tracking with me? And if anything, showing the gospel actually shows that no, no, God is holy and this is wrong. It's corroding your soul and me being close to you, it's actually corroding me. I gotta go until you get it fixed. Now, get some help. Don't do it alone. Don't be isolated. There's grace and shame for you. Find community, right? But actually, like, don't stay in relationships that are toxic and are not making the team better. You need, like, as so many of us, that's what we need to hear in this season because we, then what happens is then we just hang on way too long, which makes it muddier, worse, way more confusing, way more difficult on our heart. And so we have to understand, no, 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 God has given us a job to do, and if we are going to enter into uh, the path towards a covenant relationship marriage, then I need to be thinking about someone who is going to make me uh, not only a better person, but also a better team, that us together as an entity. And that's the beauty of marriage, by the way. Like they say when you, you know, they say of those old couples when they're like 70s and 80s, you know, that they've almost like, they're almost so, they're almost like twins at that point. Why? Because marriage, over time, melded them together in this well-rounded team where both their weaknesses have almost been covered in each other's strengths. You tracking with me? And I've already seen that even just seven years with Alyssa. Like, I am deeply way more thoughtful, and I slow down way more because of Alyssa, and I'm already going fast, so I got room to grow. You know what I mean? Uh, But you should have seen me seven years ago. Alyssa completely, like, you rub off on each other. Her strengths is her thoughtfulness, her sensitivity, And just ask her about every one of our arguments. My strengths are not those. My strengths are bulldozing, if you want to call that a strength. Uh, It's not. It's a weakness. But something about her being married to her in this intertwining of the two becoming one flesh, she has made me more thoughtful. She has made me more sensitive. That goes true, by the way, with blessing and goodness and holiness, but also sin. Right? You rub off on each other either way. Just what trajectory are you going on, towards Jesus or not? So you have to ask yourself, are we going the same place? And stop thinking about relationships as eye-to-eye, but shoulder-to-shoulder. We are on mission in this garden, and apparently if you've come into my life and the God has ordained and blessed this relationship, that it's so we can be a better team and accomplish what we couldn't have done individually. Then, the glue then becomes the eye-to-eye, the face-to-face, the intimacy, the relationship. But the vocation and the mission is to look out. Do you see your relationship like that? Another way I put it is it's not about being in love, it's about being a team. And like we know with all good teams, you still have to have that love and that care for each other to foster the team. I mean, another way to put it is imagine if a team never like did anything, right? So many of us, that's our college relationships. Like imagine if a team just hung out in the locker room and just told each other how much they love each other like every single day. (laughs) Maybe that's good like when you need some like pick-me-ups, right? Maybe that's good when it's like a hard season. But if you just did that all the time, you'd be like, bro, that's weird. Right, like The whole point of why you guys are together is to go play a game, to go win a championship, to go have a mission. Oh, by the way, there's practice every single day as well, and every team should have rituals and traditions and all these different things, not just this little love circle, (laughs) right? But it's just like that with marriage. We're created to be a team on mission for the Lord, and sometimes you need those locker room talks, but it all goes hand in hand, facing outwards towards his mission. Then lastly, what I wanted to end with is, before we dive a little deeper tomorrow, is what if, I know for me, when I, if I was your age and I was hearing a message like this, that was a season where I was in a deep porn addiction, that was a season where I was wrestling super, I, I didn't start walking with Lord till College, so then I'm wrestling enormously with putting off, putting on the old self, the new self, shame, guilt, all these different things. And I know for me, sometimes in contexts like this, I would have felt that, Right? I would have felt that, well, 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 I've already messed that up, or I've already broken that, or yeah, maybe I'm the 45 degree angle mirror, but it's broken and it's shattered at some level. My humanness has not, is not displaying what you're talking about. And so I just wanted to end with an encouragement before tomorrow. And that's this, that no, we're, 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 no matter where you're at, God is a God of healing. God is a God of restoration, right? In the same way that we unravel our humanness through our bad decisions, through our sin, Through the curse, Jesus puts back together our humanness through the cross and the resurrection. That is literally what it means when it says new creation. It's literally Him raveling it all back together, not just to where it once was, but even better so in Revelation. It's not just a garden, it's a city and it's going to be better. It's going to be amazing. He builds it with his grace. And I think the best thing that we can think about is, okay, we had Genesis 1, image bearer Genesis 2, the two become one. We see a team. But Genesis 3 does happen, the curse. What happens when the curse happens? Because it falls on so many of our lives, especially in the West, especially in America. It is epidemic level relationship brokenness. We know that. We're all in that, but God has a better way. There's two things that are fascinating about uh, the curse in Genesis 3. The curse comes, relationships are fractured, God's design is spun out of this orderly, beautiful music, and now it's going back towards chaos at some level. But how does God respond? How does God respond? I remember even hearing in seminary he said one of the one of the best rules of like scriptural interpretation or something you want to take note of is it's kind of called the law of firsts meaning like what's the first time god responds this way or what's the first time man does x because usually in scripture it's setting a pattern it's trying to set almost a meta-narrative of sorts and so curse comes into the world they did exactly what god told them not to do any parent we probably would just what discipline more right? Put them in the room more, or do something of that nature more, or say, oh, I can't, you know, get harsher with the discipline. Maybe that'll work. They did exactly what he told them not to do. They had this beautiful garden of blessing, of goodness, of fruit, of animals, of trees, of flourishing, and they still chose to do the one thing that God said not to do, which, by the way, was fascinating. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't just an arbitrary tree, but God actually specifically put a tree there to say, if you eat that, you will have the answers on your own. But I don't want you to eat that because I want you to have the answers by leaning on me. That's God's design, that we would lean on him for knowledge of good and evil, not think we can have it in and of ourselves, because just like then, we try to do that, and it ends in death. It ends in brokenness. It ends in the curse. So he tells them not to do it. They still do it. And how does God respond? What's the first thing he does? It's kind of weird, actually. He asks them a question. That's the first thing that comes out of God's mouth. The first thing in the entire narrative of humanity, once the first behavior of God from the curse entering into the world, is he asks a question. Now, first of all, why is that weird? God should never do that, right? He's God. Literally, you only ask questions if you need answers. He doesn't need answers. He's God. He's in control. He knows everything. Unless what? Might that be a rhetorical question? Might it be him actually communicating something deeper? What's the question God asked? The first thing out of his mouth. Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? Do you think he really needed an answer to that, by the way? Do you think he's like, what bush, bro? I can't find you. Where you at? <laughs> Do you think God was doing that? No. But might it be that that question was rhetorical? that God, from the very first page of Scripture, the primal Father, early in the Scripture, before we see Satan come, before we see the curse come, this first voice is a God of actually asking a question to call you out of hiding. That's what the question is doing. The question is saying, Adam, where are you? Come out of hiding. Come out of hiding. And so that's the first question I want to end today with, is where are you? God's still asking that question today. He's never stopped asking that question. And by the way, he answers it in Jesus. You can come out of hiding because of the gift we have in Jesus. Jesus was exposed and naked in front of everyone, took our sin, took our death, took the curse on himself, put it in the grave, resurrected to new life, left it all back there in the dirt and says, you have new creation. Where are you? The entirety of scripture can almost be summed up in God going all through his behaviors, but basically saying, where are you? Israel, where are you? Jesus in the first century, where are you? come home, come home. And then Adam comes out of hiding and Jesus, I mean, and God asks a second question. What's the second question? He says, we hid because we were naked. And then what's God say? Who told you you were naked? Same thing. He goes, no, 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 no. It's not, again, it's not a very specific, particular question. It's God being rhetorical. Again, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were exposed? Who told you you weren't good enough? Who told you that shame was your true identity? He says, because I didn't. That's not my voice coming in the garden. Again, when I said the most primal voice, what's fascinating about God is he was the first voice. There's a lot of voices in scripture. You got Satan, you got enemies, you got people in the nation of Israel, all these different things. God says, no, 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 I'm the most primal first voice and that's the one you need to listen to the one that's declaring love and beauty and order and my child over you. And that's what I want to end on this morning, is have you answered those two questions? Specifically in your sexuality, your relationships, but also in your job, also in your uh, school, also in your classes, also in whatever context you're in. Have you answered those questions? God says, where are you? And have you come out of hiding? And then if you also, when he asks, who told you you were naked, said, no, no I am going to believe that there is no shame and guilt on me because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. I am going to believe the name he puts on me. I am going to believe the identity he puts on me. And when you understand that, that's what Romans 6 is talking about. It breaks chains. Completely breaks it. Absolute freedom. Completely a gift, you're free, you're new, you have a new name put on you, restored, beautiful, his, known, seen, loved, not isolated, not alone. God says, I see you, I love you, I desire you, and I want to, just like in the garden when he asked that question, walk with you. He created us as image bearers to walk with him. Are you walking with him or are you hiding? Jesus is inviting us to walk with him. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, I just want to take a second and just pause this morning, Lord. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for your voice, that you are constantly alive, chasing, ferociously pursuing us, coming after us with the same questions asking us where are you why are you hiding lord we thank you that not only did you clothe us in the garden in that moment but then in a full way in the person and work of jesus clothed us with your righteousness you see us in the same way that you see jesus and that is freedom that is what we sing about. That is what we get excited about. And that has deep ramifications for everything in our life. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be people of freedom. That everyone here, this, this season, this semester, the college years would be a time of renewal. So many of us, by the time we get to college, that's almost the time where we feel like we've already messed it up. It's already too late. We've already made a bunch of decisions in the years past. And so, Lord, in this beautiful little pocket of the kingdom that you have here at Olivet, I pray this would be a place of renewal for our sexuality, for how we view relationships, in our bodies, in things that have been done against us that are not our fault, that are evil, that are of the curse, that you would touch us and heal us, renew us, make us new again. And, Lord, we thank you that you do that, and we thank you for your grace. <clears throat> we love you, Lord. To your name we pray. Amen.